You know, when we um, gather for staff meeting on Tuesdays here, often we have a part in the agenda where we call wins, and we talk about things that are wins that have gone well. And uh, uh, we didn't meet this week because the project was still going on, but clearly Windy City Project was a, was a huge win, and we're uh, still sort of reveling in that. As Diana said, we'll be bringing you some more stories and photos in the, in the days ahead. I was thinking about winning and um, the whole, uh, we kind of got a little bit swept up in the whole World Cup thing lately. And, um, but with the recent finals also in basketball and the finals in hockey and World Cup soccer, it got me thinking about the whole idea of of, of winning and the home, the idea of a home field advantage. And I found this article uh, online and it said this, it was uh, based on a Sports Illustrated story in 2011. So sports fans around the world can rely on one fact about their sport. The home team wins more often than the visiting team. Statistics show that. A 2011 Sports Illustrated article concludes, quote, home field advantage is no myth. Indisputably, it exists. Across all sports and at all levels, from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL, the team hosting a game wins more often than not. Okay, so it didn't work out so well for Brazilian soccer this time. But anyway, uh, but what the article asks, what explains this fact? A wealth of evidence disputes the most common theories behind home team advantage. For instance, thousands of cheering or jeering fans actually do not change a team's performance. On a number of statistics, such as pitch velocity in baseball or free throw percentage in basketball, which over two decades was 75.9% for home and visiting teams. Same, free throw percentage. Home field advantage did not make a difference. The research, their research also eliminated other likely theories based on the rigors of travel for the visiting team or home team's familiarity with their field, rink, or court. So what drives home field advantage? According to the authors of the article, quote, officials' bias, officials' bias is the most significant contribution to home field advantage. In short, the refs don't like to get booed. So when the game gets close, they call fewer fouls or penalties against the home team, or they call more strikes against the visiting batters. Larger and louder fans really do influence the calls from the officials. The refs naturally and often unconsciously respond to the pressure from the crowd. Then they try to please the angry fans and make the calls that will lessen the pain of crowd disapproval. In the end, the refs' people-pleasing response can have an impact on the final result of the game. And this made me think of what's happening in the first 16 verses of John chapter 19. We have seen this whole drama, really, of of Jesus and the opposition all through John's gospel. We've been studying John since last year ago, April. And we've seen this kind of play out like a crafty game, in a sense. The pursuit of Jesus, the threats against Jesus, the manipulation of facts, the lies and the persuasion, all up against this confident Jesus who answers when he wants to and doesn't when he doesn't want to and is clearly confident of his own identity and his own victory to come. But it's been like this game of back and forth. And now Pilate comes into play. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the reluctant judge, the one who is called upon to bring a sentence of death that the Jewish leaders, that is the opposition to Jesus, that they could not do on their own. They can't bring a sentence on their own. And so they're playing this game to secure the sentence from Pilate. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He says it over and over again. He tries to release him. 
The decision here, the win, should by all means go to Jesus. But as the official, as the ref, as the empire in this game, people-pleasing Pilate caves to the people. And he caves into their evil request. Like in this article on the home field advantage, the refs naturally and often unconsciously respond to the pressure from the crowd. Then they try to please the angry fans and make the calls that will lessen the pain of crowd disapproval. In the end, the ref's people-pleasing response can have an impact on the final result of the game. The pain of crowd disapproval. And for Pilate, it was even more than that. It could put him into great trouble with Rome as well. And so the angry mob persuades Pilate and they get their win on their turf. But this, of course, is much more than the game. It's life and it's death. In fact, it's a bigger cosmic battle that is raging too. It's a battle for the truth. And it is a turning point in God's relationship with his people that's coming very soon, within hours. Jesus is assured the final victory. He is the king of kings. He is the the king of the Jews, as Pilate says he is. But the victory comes at a great cost. The victory comes at a great cost. His very real, his very agonizing suffering and death. So we're going to kind of take this perspective of home field advantage and the win and and really ask the question, who really is winning in this? And so we say this then about this first part of chapter 19. In this final scene of Jesus' trial, the opposition has the home field advantage and Pilate caves to their demand, handing them the win, the crucifixion of Jesus. But as we know the story, that the ultimate win goes to Jesus and to those who claim him as king. So that's where we're going to try to head today and in the next few weeks. By the way, August 10th is Easter Sunday. <laughs> so if you're planning to be out of town the 10th, change your plans because you want to be here. We're celebrating Easter. We might even have the or we might even sing Christ Lord is risen last a few months ago, but we're going to sing it because we're in Revelation 20. But today we're in 19. It's Friday, and Sunday's coming. Some of you know that talk, right? It's Friday, and we're going to deal with Friday here. And today we're particularly looking at Pilate and the the call that he needs to make. So first of all, we're going to look at his compromise that he offers to try to get rid of Jesus. Pilate's compromise when he presents Jesus and says, Behold the man. Secondly, Pilate interacts with Jesus here, and we have the issue of Pilate's power. How much power does he really have? And he asks Jesus, Where do you come from? And then finally, as the crowd puts on even more pressure as the story begins to to wind up, we have Pilate's dilemma. He knows Jesus is innocent, and yet he's feeling the pressure of the crowd. He says to the people, shall I crucify your king? And then finally, he gives the sentence of crucifixion, which is a deep loss and yet a win as well. The outline looked good when I wrote it. Let's see if it works, okay? Shall we? (laughs) Pilate's compromise. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent of breaking any Roman law, and he doesn't really care about Jewish law. At least three times in John's telling of this story, he proclaims Jesus' innocence. Pilate proclaims his innocence. The wind goes to Jesus as far as Pilate's concerned. But then there's this crowd pressure and Pilate's desire to appease the angry mob. So in the first few verses of John 19, we have his ugly effort at a compromise. And his ugly effort is this horrific flogging at the hands of the Roman soldiers who slap him on the face as they shout in his face, Hail the king of the Jews, sending mockery his way as they abuse him severely. Hail, King of the Jews. And we have John's account of the whipping, the flogging, the crown of thorns pressed into his head and skin, the purple robe that is placed over the open, bleeding wounds. 
Paintings and film versions have depicted the scene from from just a few simple little gashes on Jesus' perfectly fair, not very Jewish-looking skin to the very ugly depiction that Mel Gibson gave us in The Passion of the Christ. You know, that's been 10 years now. And the brutal, brutal wounding that happened there, I'm not going to show you any pictures of that because it's ugly. When the soldiers finally slow down, Pilate takes Jesus and presents him to the people and says, Behold the man. Behold the man. But what he's really saying is, Behold, he's just a pitiful, broken man. Shouldn't I just let him go? Pilate displays a Jesus in sort of cruel submission, clearly bearing the the marks of this brutal, brutal punishment. He's actually hoping when he says, Behold the man, that he's securing his release. Some of you know this famous painting of Behold the Man or the Latin name H.A. Homo. Written by, or, um, painted by, I can't remember his name, an Italian guy. Do we have that picture, Wendell? There it is. That's Pilate looking out at the crowd and pointing to Jesus. This is one of you, only has a few gashes on him. But saying, behold the man. He's just a man. He's a pathetic man. He's standing there bleeding profusely and no doubt deeply broken. And for Pilate says, look, this is the one you call the king. Look how miserable he is. Behold this simple bleeding man. It's time to let him go. But for the Jewish leaders, for those in opposition to Jesus, they do not buy the compromise. It's not a win for them to let Jesus go. It's not a win for them at all. It's even worse than a tie. It's a loss. And so they press harder and they say to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate moves from attempting this compromise to asserting his power. And so we have Pilate's power here. Pilate grasped at another way of getting at all of this. He tells the Jews to just go away and crucify Jesus themselves. Just go do it. Which you already know, we already know from the story, they cannot legally do. So the Jewish leaders suddenly and temporarily shift the game. Now this has been a political game till now. They keep playing this king card saying, he's a, Jesus, Pilate keeps saying, here's your king, they say he's not our king. Here's your king, there's not a king. And we know that soon it will wrap up with them, them saying, we have no king but Caesar. So it's been this political thing. Pilate has determined in a sense because he has determined that Jesus is not a threat to Rome. That's all he really cares about. So it's been a political game until suddenly the opposition shifts it abruptly to a religious game. Let's look at what it says here. In verse 7, they shift to their own religious law and they shift to a name for Jesus that causes Pilate to react with fear. The Jews say back to him, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. What they're doing here is they're bringing up this charge of blasphemy. Jesus says he is the son of God. He is one with God. And John has quoted that before. It's referring back to an Old Testament text in Leviticus that that claims that anyone to claim to be the Son of God is in blasphemy. And it's that charge against Jesus which actually takes center stage in Matthew's version of this trial and in Mark's version of this trial. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not in contradiction. They give us different emphases. And Matthew and Mark play out this one of blasphemy even more where John plays out this political one about king except for right here where the opposition shifts the game and throws this political or this uh, religious punch into it. And when, sh- and when Pilate hears this name, Son of God, it shakes him. It unnerves him. Something about this inquiry he does not like. It touches a superstitious, even a spiritual side of Pilate. It's an area of the unknown, the possibility that there is a higher power than him or than Caesar, a power that could bring him down. It's not a power that's saying, oh, I want to believe in Jesus. It's a power that scares him because of what he might lose in this game. 
And so he asked Jesus when the shift goes to the religious, he says, where are you from? Where are you from? And it's not a question about his hometown. It goes deeper. What is your origin? What is your source? Are you truly this divine man that some of these say you are? And to ask that question shakes him. And it raises the question for him and for us, who has the power? Who has the power in this situation? As Pilate feels his power in jeopardy, he pushes at Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't answer, which Jesus only answers when he needs to. And in verse 10, Pilate comes back to him, asserting the power. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Power, you know, Pilate's sort of you know, strengthening up here. I can get rid of you so easily. Don't you know I have the power? And Jesus calmly says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now that opens up a whole area that I can't really go into today because this sermon is not about government power and authority, but it touches it, doesn't it? It reminds us of Romans 13 where it says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. And that gives questions to if the government's acting, are they in God's will? Well, not necessarily. God gives them the power and then they abuse it. (laughs) And that's really kind of what's happening here. So Jesus changes the game back to the issue of power and politics says, you only have power because it's been given to you by God. And again, right after this exchange about power, Pilate does not respond, but he tries again to set Jesus free. He wants out of this thing. His win is to let Jesus go. Pilate tries again to set him free, to give him the win, but the angry crowd pushes him harder. And it pushes him here, thirdly, to the dilemma, Pilate's dilemma. Shall I crucify your king? The opposition sets up the dilemma in verse 12, actually. The dilemma of, is it the innocence of Jesus over against this friendship with Caesar? Verse 12 says, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Apparently, a friend of Caesar, or maybe in those days they called them an FOC. Remember when Bill Clinton was office, he had the FOBs? Well, anyway, the FOCs uh, apparently was, a, was an official status. And, and, and so if you were an FOC, I, you had some kind of card or something, I don't know, and you had access to Caesar. There were certain state banquets I guess you could go to uh, if, you had, if you were an FOC. It was like going to be a state dinner at the White House, and now it would be an FOB or an FOM of Barack or Michelle. So it's possible that they're speaking of that, but it's likely it's just more of a general thing. You are no friend of Caesar. Your credentials are going to be pulled away, but, but basically you are, you are, you're going up against Caesar if you go for the innocence of this man, which really... Didn't make sense, but that's the card that they're playing here. And this is a, really an implied threat. If Pilate lets Jesus go, he himself will end up being accused before Caesar. If he lets Jesus go, this crowd's going to make it look like he has opposed Caesar. And it would not be a pretty ending for Pilate. And even now, he's already on high alert, always being watched by other Roman authorities and and hanging on dearly to his job and his power and hoping desperately for promotion out of Palestine. And this one is really getting at him. This is where we come back to that home field advantage of the, the crowd pressure and the angry mob. Pilate tries one more time and he presents Jesus. He says, here is your king. And I don't think he's serious at all. I think he's mocking once again. It almost seems like he he does it just to rile them up some more. And of course, he does not mean that this is your king, but I think John keeps quoting it because John does mean it. John says, this is your king. This is your king. 
But Pilate says it in mockery. He keeps putting, John keeps putting before us the sovereignty of Jesus, who is our king. But the Jewish opposition cries out once again, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate asks the question, shall I crucify your king? And then the telling, ironic phrase, we have no king but Caesar. Jewish religious leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. It's a pronouncement for them that puts the final press on Pilate. It's a pronouncement that protects them from any charge of rebelling against Rome. They're just out to get Jesus. They're not out to rebel against Rome. And they're safe by saying, we have no king but Jesus. But think about it. The Jewish leaders, the high priests, the guardians of the one true biblical faith, those who serve and obey the one true living God, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And the irony is, they're right. They have No king, but Caesar. They are not being led by the Spirit of God. They are not seeking the truth of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. They are in this ugly and horrible game, denying the power and the revelation of the one true living God who supposedly they are working for and representing. They're totally wrapped up in their own agenda of fear and power and self-protection. We have no king but Jesus, only a distant tyrant in Rome. Pilate's dilemma, the innocence of Jesus or the crucifixion of him. And so he's pushed to this place of making the call and delivers the sentence. He delivers a sentence which is a win for the people, in a sense a loss for him, obviously a horrific loss for Jesus, and yet ultimately a win. But it's poor, pitiful Pilate, the people pleaser. First part of verse 16 says, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Who, who is the winner in this situation? It's hard because we know how the story goes. That we go, it's okay. It's okay because Jesus can rise again. Everything's fine. <laughs> it's not fine. Yes, in the ultimate working of God, the plan is working out. But the sin is at its, at its darkest and ugliest. It's a game played so unfairly. Not just the officials represented by Pilate, but the players on the field. Except for the one player, Jesus, who plays along. Again, we step back and we look at this. In this final scene, the opposition here has clearly had the home field advantage. Pilate, we've seen him caving to their demand, handing them the win the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's the last phrase and we focus on for just a moment before we sing a couple wonderful songs about our king. The ultimate win goes to Jesus and those who claim him as king. Let's reflect on these two statements. Last slide. 
The two statements are, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Jesus. We know the second one is the right... How many know the second one's the right answer? <laughs> Sounds like a squirrel, but no. <laughs> but just as we finish, just for a moment to reflect a little bit, what, what do we struggle with? We don't worship Caesar. But we give our affections and our attention and our loyalties in a lot of different places than to Jesus, don't we? We let other things be king of our hearts and king of our lives. King of our thought life. King of the things that we look at and read. King of the decisions we make that sometimes are more expedient, we think, than when Jesus is king. With what do you struggle and where will you land? We know we want to land on Jesus our king. Pilate was just a guy. Yeah, he had a lot of power, but he was just a guy. And he caved in to the pressure and the power. He saw and he knew the innocence of Jesus. He was even a little bit interested in Jesus, we catch from the Synoptic Gospels. But he caved in to their lifting up Caesar as king. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Jesus. Reflect on who is really on the throne of your heart and life now as we close this message. And then the band's going to come up and we're going to sing a couple wonderful songs about our king. Let's pray. song about a king, about our king, and Megan told me, how about majesty? And I'm like, yeah, I heard that before. That's a nice song. And I started to play it, and I felt like, no, this is not how I want to play it. <laughs> um, so I, I changed it up a little bit. So this is a time of... So you all found something to be thankful for, right? All right. So when... This is the important part. When, when you think about something you're thankful for, also pray for other people that might not have that blessing in their life. Um, I, I said, thank you, God, for the air conditioning in my car. <laughs> but I finally figured out how to... <laughs> place <laughs> but also be with those who don't have an air condition in their car these days <laughs> I know the struggle <laughs> and there's so many things we just want to praise God for so let's sing majesty and this is a song that I would stand up and just lift my hands as high as I can um, because God is so good <laughs> 